Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast. I am your host, Nate Swick. I hope your self-isolation is going well. I hope you are still finding birds at home or in your local patch. Um, One of the more interesting aspects of all this isolation, I think, has been the way in which birding is sort of having a day here. I think it has to do with people looking for hobbies they can participate in with this COVID-19 reality. I have seen a fair number of regular news outlets posting stories about bird watching in the last couple weeks. One of them came from a friend of the ABA, Nick Lund. He wrote, wrote it for Slate. It was called, uh, You Have No Choice But To Become A Backyard Bird Watcher. There was one in The Guardian with the title, The Wildlife Travel Drama On Your Doorstep, which know, seems like it's overselling it a little bit, but you know, you got to do what you got to do. I understand how these headlines work. My colleague Ted Floyd shared one on the ABA's internal Slack called Coronavirus Quarantine is a great time to get into birding. The Washington Post had something. Obviously, Audubon had something. The Times of India, Times of India had a thing about bird watching uh, during this self-isolating COVID-19 thing. Uh, ABA President Jeff Gordon was quoted in an article from WHYY in Philadelphia. Uh, Chris Packham, who our UK listeners might know, he hosts the BBC program Spring Watch over in Great Britain, has created a self-isolating bird club group on Facebook. That's worth checking out if you're looking for more resources while you're sitting around. I think they're going to do a kind of a big bird count one weekend in mid-April. So if that's something you want to be a part of, definitely check that group out. I don't know if birding is going to see a renaissance because of this, but it, you know, it might be one of those things where people come out on the other side with a, you know, with a new interest. Seems like baking and gardening are also sort of having similar moments right now. It's definitely something we're going to keep an eye on in the near future. I think I'll have some folks on this podcast uh, to talk about birding and COVID and the various intersections of the two, maybe in an upcoming episode. So keep an eye out for that. In the meantime, I do hope y'all are staying safe and healthy above all. We do have one big announcement that I want to mention here. If you're a longtime ABA or you might remember the big day and list report that we would mail out every year, we moved that online some time ago because you know, why mail out a magazine that is mostly just numbers when you can put that online? It seems like the internet was made for that sort of thing. Uh, but we have just rolled out a brand new update for Listing Central, our online list website that is very exciting. It includes the ability to port your ABA area eBird checklist directly into Listing Central, uh, at which point you can add or remove any species that you'd like to get that up to date, to get that ABA compliant. So, you know, eBirds ABA area sort of inexplicably doesn't include Hawaii, so you can add that. Uh, you can pull off any non-uncountable, non-native species that you'd like. I've got a couple of those on my eBird list. I already heard onlys, if that's your thing. I don't understand that, but if that's your thing, feel free to take those off your checklist. It's it's a big deal. It's very cool. It's available to any and all ABA members, so you know a great reason to join. If you like, you can find that at aba.org slash listing. Check that out. On the show today, I have another cedar waxwing story, this time from Jane Ramberg of Dallas, Texas. Thanks for sending that in, Jane. That is at the end of the episode. But first, let's talk bird song. It's spring. There's a lot of, a lot of birds singing right now. We can talk about it with one of the best-known bird song researchers and authors in the world, Donald Krudsma. He is with me to talk about his new book, Bird Song for the Curious Naturalist. That is after this week's Rare Birds. 
This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of March 2020. I have a couple noteworthy rare birds to mention this time around. The first was a male gargany discovered at Sambro, Nova Scotia, the fifth record for the province. This beautiful old world duck is most frequently found on the west coast of the continent, so one in eastern Canada is definitely exciting. Most North American records come from the spring, March through May, though this might have to do with the fact that this is when the males are looking extra sharp and are most easily spotted among migrating duck flocks. Uh, it is interesting to note that this individual is hanging out with a blue-wing teal. That's not unusual. Howell and Russell note in the excellent Rare Birds of North America book that they suspect that these eastern gargany are overwintering with blue-wing teal in the Caribbean, maybe having come over from the Old World, the Africa to Northern South America route rather than the North Atlantic route, as there are, interestingly enough, no records of gargany for Greenland. On the other side of the ABA area, a marsh sandpiper was seen in Kern County, California, in the southern half of the state. There is some speculation that this might also be a bird that originated from this side of the Pacific. California has had marsh sandpiper in 2018 and 2014, so it's not too much of a stretch to imagine a bird that is just sort of migrating back and forth with resident sandpipers. That's about it for rarities in the ABA area for the period. For all you can handle, please check out the Rare Bird Alert Hub on the ABA website. That's aba.org slash RBA. You can also find lots of rare birds at the ABA's Rare Bird Alert Facebook group. You can find that at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare and on our Rarity Twitter feed at ABA Bird Alert. It's hard to step out your back door these days without being overwhelmed by birdsong. Spring is easing northward across the continent and with it an increase in the activities of birds. A few people know this like ornithologist and author Donald Kruzma. He is Professor Emeritus of Ornithology at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst and the author of a great many books on bird vocalizations. He joins me today to talk about his most recent birdsong for the Curious Naturalist released just last month, and just in time for the annual annual explosion of birdsong in the Northern Hemisphere. Don, uh, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Oh, great to be here, Nate. So, you know, you're widely known as one of the world's authorities on birdsong. So what is it about bird vocalizations that you find so completely fascinating? Oh, my. Where do you begin? <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. They hit me about 50 years ago, Nate, and I was, you know, I was searching all over the world. I was the first... Uh, year PhD student. I was searching all over for my graduate project, and I drove all over Oregon. I went to the coast, the coast range, the Willamette Valley, to the desert on the far side of the Cascades, and it wasn't until I got to my backyard and <laughs> simply listened to a wren singing there, to all the different songs he could sing, and then to his neighbors, and then to realize that the birds just a few miles away had all different songs, why, in a nutshell, there were a million questions to be answered right there yeah. about these very intriguing creatures that learn their songs just like we learn to speak. And it just goes on and on and on like that. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it is truly amazing, these quiet lives of these very common birds that we know in our backyard. You know, I, I think that birders in general are becoming much more aware 
of that aspect of birds. You know, birding for so long was so much a, a visual medium. You know, people would not put herd birds on their on their life lists, or they would feel like an experience with a, a bird where you only got to hear its vocalization is somewhat lesser than if you had seen the bird. And it, it, that I mean, now that feels so crazy to me when I think of iconic vocalizations like a whippoorwill or something like that, like that experience of hearing a whippoorwill is such a huge part of the experience of the bird. I feel like if I had only seen it, that would be a lesser experience. You mean you don't have on your list a scene only category? <laughs> I should. I should. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Should. Most pelagic oh, I, birds. <laughs> I needle my birder friends and tell them, well, you can't count it unless you hear it. Right. Right. There was a friend who finally got the varied thrush on his list a few years ago, and mm -hmm. I asked him, Jim, where'd you, where'd you get your thrush? Well, it was in the middle of winter at a feeder. And I just said, Jim, you can't count a varied thrush unless you hear it. <laughs> That's right. It's just not right. Yeah. So, so your new book is, is Birdsong for the Curious Naturalist. What is it that you think that naturalists or even birders don't know about birdsong that should be more widely known? Oh, I think it's just simply pulling up a chair if you need to get comfortable and listen mm -hmm. to an individual singing. I biked across the country a few years ago with my son, Virginia, to Oregon, and never was a bird boring. There was never mm -hmm. just a robin because each individual is expressing itself in some unique way right now. And it's amazing what you hear if you just say, okay. I've got time. I'm going to listen to that one bird. And maybe I'm going to do it for a couple months at a time like yeah. I do. And you, you get to know these creatures as individuals. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a good feeling to be connected in that way. Yeah. So, so what can you learn by listening to, to one bird? What is it doing? What, sh what should I be listening to with my you know, neighborhood house, house finches? Oh, house finches are pretty tough because they have such complex songs. They, do. they but, really do, yeah. But there are, there are other birds, very s uh, simple birds. And I suggest in my book that, that we can each do science. And mm -hmm. we can say, well, how do we start doing science? And I say, well, just start counting. Count something. Count anything. Uh, that black-capped chickadee singing on you know, the eastern well, this huge dialect that extends from the Atlantic to the Pacific, with mm -hmm. a few exceptions. Just listen to one chickadee for a while, and after a while, you'll hear him switch. He'll pitch shift. He'll shift the pitch of that song either up or down, and you know, you oh, why don't we count? Let's count the number of times he sings on one pitch, and then mm -hmm. you 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 got a number, and before you know it, you say, well, how does this number compare with? Well, what if we listen during the dawn chorus and you discover something very different then. So just by collecting some simple numbers, by counting, by listening, we connect with these creatures. Yeah. I'm also struck by how much of my birding these days is um, is by vocalization almost exclusively, especially when I'm, I live in the Southeast United States. And so by the time that the, by the time that the spring migrants are starting to come back, uh, the trees have already leafed out. I mean, it's already full canopy. And so if you really want to find a lot of these birds, it's, it's vocalization only. Like you really have to key in on that stuff, um, to, to find them. So I, I don't know, I don't know that I would have really appreciated that if I didn't end up moving down here and sort of be forced into it. But it is sort of, uh, interesting in the way in which 
I have sort of been forced to be a bird vocalization. I wouldn't say expert, but at least aware, right? So, mm-hmm. and it starts. You know, birders typically use the sound to know what is around. Mm-hmm. And then I would, I would, I try to take birders a step further and say, okay, you know what's around, but but uh, get in touch with that individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than list, uh, move beyond the listing to listening to what each creature, creature is doing. So I, I really like the way that this book is is set up. You know, you look at each species individually, but not as sort of a field guidey sort of A to B taxonomic order, but using these birds as you know, examples of certain behaviors that are, are best observed or noted by paying attention to bird vocalizations. It's almost like a, a textbook for someone learning a language, like these are the words you use when you go to the store. These are the words you use when you have an emergency and you need help. It's a very interesting way to learn sort of bird language. I assume that was sort of your intent? Yes, it was my intent. I've written some experiential books about mm-hmm. how I, as a scientist, wander through the world listening to bird song and, and how I analyze it. But friends of mine have said, all right, just give us the facts. And <laughs> right. so, so yeah. I said, okay. Here is everything I know about birdsong, my last the 50 years of my life, all encapsulated and organized around these topics. All right, birds learn their songs. How can we hear that learning? How can mm-hmm. we hear song dialects? How can, we, how can we estimate how many different songs a brown thrasher has, yeah. well over a thousand, wow. just by listening? So I, I provide... You know, in outline form, I think there are 10 chapters in the book, mm-hmm. and then subchapters, uh, topics and subtopics of how to explore the world of birdsong. Has your sort of appreciation of birdsong changed in any way in the years that you've been been looking at it? You know, I, it's, we've, as a community, as a science community and a birding community, we've learned so much about why and how sort of the brain mechanics of birdsong. Does that sort of change the way that you appreciate that? you know, wren in your backyard? Oh, I think my appreciation has just grown exponentially over <laughs> the years, Nate. And with new technology, now we've got these recorders that we can take out, these swift recorders produced mm-hmm. by the bioacoustics program at Cornell. I'll have a dozen of these recorders out that I'll be monitoring. I hoist them up into trees, got try to get them near to singing birds during the dawn chorus. I cannot get enough of what these creatures are doing, even mm-hmm. after 50 years. I imagine so. You know, do you think it's easier now for, for birders or for researchers who are interested in, in looking at birdsong to, to learn about birdsong than it's ever been? Oh, wow. I think back to the technology we used to use, and it's, <laughs> a, it's hard to use that word technology. We right. had, it used to take five minutes to create a two-and-a-half-second sonogram or sound wow. spectrogram of a sound. Now we can upload that wave file instantly to right. a computer. We can see an hour of it at a time. I'm sitting here digitizing my old analog tapes so that I can do just that. I can pull them up and just look at them, feast on, feast my eyes on what these creatures are doing when, you know, we, um, you know, Raven Light, a free program from Cornell. Uh, lots of freebies. Um, yeah. So, oh, it's a it's a wonderful time to be interested in birdsong. Yeah, I know. I remember, you know, photos of of birders from even as recently as like the seventies, which really is not that long ago. You know, using these giant like reel to reel recorders and these big parabolic 
mics to get birdsong. And, and like, honestly, I have gone out. I, I, I've tried to get better at recording birdsong. Um, and I've found that my phone, like the iPhone that I carry around, is actually pretty good at isolating birdsong, especially if it's not too far away. And then I can throw it up in Audacity, which is a free recording program and put it in there and like I can make my own spectrograms that previously when I started birding and looked at the old Chandler Robbins field guide when they had the spectrograms in the on the pages um felt like uh like impossible it, it's it's really it's really <laughs> remarkable <laughs> yes it is and and it's wonderful that lots of people out there with their iPhones recording any recording of any quality can be fascinating to look at yeah uh I did actually pull those old big reel-to-reel recorders, those dinosaurs, <laughs> yeah. out of my closet a few days so I could look at some of those old reel-to-reel tapes. But for me, there's still nothing like that parabolic reflector. Yeah, It just is a huge physical amplifier that sucks the sound out of the air. That distant bird, it sounds like you put your headphones on, it sounds like he's sitting on your shoulder and singing wonderful recording devices we have available now. Yeah, people still use them too. I was in, um, uh, a few years ago, I did the Champions of the Flyway race in, in Israel with a team of younger birders uh, via the ABA. And one of them, uh, Marky Mutchler, who I think is a, a student in L- at LSU now, uh, studying birds, brought her parabolic mic with her, like in her bag. And so she like brought it back out and whoop, like the whole thing like popped out because she had shoved it in her, her bag and was she was actually out there recording all these really great bird songs in the old world, which were completely new for a lot of us. It was very, very cool to see people still using that equipment, though. Oh, the parabolic reflectors now, why they fold up, they roll up yeah. into a six inch, six inch diameter roll and you can take them anywhere. So no, I think parabolas are still king. Yeah. So, do you have a a favorite bird song? And I, you know, I asked this for, for knowing full well that there's a section towards the end of the book where you share a few of your favorites. But for people who maybe have not seen the book yet, um, what is there sort of what is your favorite song that you enjoy hearing every year? Or is there? Ooh. I mean, that may be a hard question oh. for you because you've heard so many. <laughs> well, somewhat facetiously, I say yeah. toward the end of the book the. The most favorite song is the one I'm hearing now. But if I were really pressed, Nate, I would probably settle on thrushes Mm, and just knowing what they do, knowing what a wood thrush does, how they use their two sound sources to produce the most extraordinary harmonies. And I have to tell you that I also love starlings. I love to listen to starlings. And they do something that... I don't know of any other songbird that does. They mimic two birds simultaneously with their left and right voice box. And I have some, I have an example on the, in the book. And also the, the, the website is free, of course. It's yeah. birdsongforthecurious.com. Anybody who wants to listen to a wonderful starling mimicking a flicker, the wick, 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 wick song, and a Phoebe simultaneously huh. using his two voice boxes can go find the starling recording on that website and and just marvel at what these creatures are up to. Yeah, so do you have any idea what's going on in in that bird's brain when it makes those two songs <laughs> simultaneously? Is there something that is there something special oh. about a starling's brain or or any bird's brain that allows them to sort of process that? Well, the starling is just taking 
what many songbirds do one step further. He's just imitated two sounds and using his two voice mm -hmm. boxes simultaneously. But all birds, you know, the, the brain, oh, if you, the brain of these songbirds have song control. I'm watching a chickadee outside my window. <laughs> And he's not singing, but I can just hear his songs over the entire country. They just irresistibly run through my mind. But okay, back to back. <laughs> sure, to sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, they have these song control centers, and then there are nerves that run down the side of the neck, uh, a, a, a nerve on the left side and the right side. Hmm. And each one of them going to the, the left, left one going to the left voice box and the right one going to the right voice box. And so these two voice boxes, syringes, are controlled independently. And you can think of singing as precision breathing. Hmm. The air is gated through those two voice boxes. A little piece of cartilage you know, is, is pulled out into the passageway, and the vibrations are just as the bird wanted it because it's memorized right. what it has to do. The memories are up there in the brain as to how to produce these sounds. They've practiced them for maybe a full year before they come out just perfectly. Huh. So taking these two independent messages, going to these two voice boxes, uh, a bird like, oh, like uh, like the wood thrush, that in the last part of his song, right. and I have some examples on my website where you slow that last part down and you can play with some of the uh, software editing on the computer. Oh, very cool. And you, Erase the left side, erase the right side, and you can hear what he's doing with the left voice box, with the right, and then coordinated it together. Uh, it's pretty extraordinary. Yeah, they definitely make this sort of dissonant. Uh, you, know, you know, one of my favorite, whenever I, I always think of, it's always spring here in North Carolina when I, the wood thrushes come back. And, and not just the wood thrushes, but we are fortunate to get all, most of the catharist thrushes come through uh, and sing snippets of their songs. And um, yeah, you know, they all have that sort of very dissonant sound in them that sounds like, you know, like, uh, it's like, I can't, I can't really describe it. It's like, uh, you know, rubbing two balloons together almost. It's like they're kind of this weird harsh harshness that is you know, written into this, into this song. And uh, that's the two voice boxes working against each other almost. I'm glad you brought up that dissonance. It yeah. is almost percussive. It, yeah. It's the last part of the song is where the magic is. Yeah. Our ears are better adapted to hearing the first part of the song where there's some nice, slow mm -hmm. and good tonal sounds, but it's the last part that's percussive and our ears just cannot track it in real time. So if we slow it down four times, eight times, I think we start to hear the details that the bird hears. And once you do that, you realize that, wow, to our ears, it may sound percussive, but right. not to the birds. Do, the, do female birds respond differently to a really sharp, for lack of a better word, example of dissonance? Like, obviously, there's an evolutionary advantage to, to having that sort of weird sound in their songs. Well, if only we knew. <laughs> what are the mysteries, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's one of the huge mysteries of, you know, we can say that the male is singing all day long when he's unpaired. And yeah. and as soon as he's paired, like a brown thrasher, just stops singing. He's huh. got to be singing for her. Yeah. Is she choosing males based on some details of the song? Why, yeah. we have to assume so, but then we have some birds that, we have a local prairie warbler. I think he's been back eight or nine years, and he has the most atypical song imaginable, hmm. but he's been highly successful. Huh. You know, what gives? Yeah, <laughs> so, maybe there's some sort of advantage to novelty. 
you know, uh, this sort of thing. You know, back to that wood thrush for a minute. Yeah, yeah. One of the magical parts of the wood thrush is every song, successive songs are always different. Mm-hmm. And that's the same for hermit thrushes. And, and that's part of what is so magical about the songs of these, these, especially these two thrushes. And I have, I created a sound sample on the website where I've taken just one song. And this is, this is what song sparrows do. A song sparrow has about 10 different songs. Yeah. He repeats one song many times before switching to another. And that's song sparrow. But if you take a wood thrush song and repeat it 10 times, the magic is completely gone because huh. a wood thrush, one of the keys is that successive songs have to be different. And maybe they are even especially different from each other to create high contrast. I'm sure that's what these hermit thrushes are doing. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's not just one song that you listen to and say wood thrush. No, you got to hear the whole, the whole sequence thing. of the yeah. bird jumping around from one song to the next. Yeah. What about what about those birds that don't sing but still vocalize? Is there are there interesting things going on? And, you know, obviously we when we talk about bird vocalizations, there's we, we sort of jump to the passerines. But um, you know, those birds that don't have that sort of variety, are there some interesting things going on there as well? Oh, there have to be. We yeah. even have songbirds that we think of as not having a song, mm. like a like the uh, oh the waxwings and right, yeah. Uh, you know, this whole passerine group, there are two suborders within these passerines. Mm-hmm. All of those flycatchers, none of those unique song control centers of true songbirds have been found in those subassine relatives. So those songs, we believe, are mostly, well, somehow encoded in the DNA. Yeah. So there's very little variation across, you know, wide geographic expanses in, in the flycatchers that we know, know in North America, for example. Yeah. Interesting that we, you know, for a long time, uh, willow and alder flycatcher were considered one species, but, you know, they were always singing those two slightly different songs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even though they are very difficult for birders to tell apart frequently, the birds seem to have no trouble whatsoever. <laughs> oh, by, by sight, I think everybody has trouble, yeah. even the birds. Yeah. But the songs are so different. And Nate, we could take that one step further. Those who have looked very carefully at willow flycatcher songs will say, you know, there's an Eastern. Okay, back <laughs> right. up just a minute. Yeah. The songs are encoded in the genes. The songs tell us about the genes of willow flycatchers. Now, one person, Jim Sedgwick was his name, I believe. He studied these willow flycatcher songs. And he says, well, really? There's an Eastern group, and then there are two Western groups. And if we really think about, you know, the genetic differences among populations telling us something about their evolutionary history, we just might, and I asked him point blank once, I said, Jim, how many willow flycatcher species do you think there are? He said three, Hmm. in a word. Yeah. So, but you can't do that with songbirds because they learn their songs from each other. And the songs are really not an indication of the underlying genetic makeup. Yeah, that's really interesting. It feels like sort of in this period of time when we are all sort of encouraged to to stay close to home and minimize travel, that it's a really excellent time for birders to kind of take note of these these differences in vocalizations, the opportunities to learn vocalizations and, and look closer at them. Um, what advice would you give to people who might be self-isolating, who want to appreciate birdsong in a way they might not have done before well could i be so crass as to say buy my book <laughs> am i allowed to yeah, say why not? that yeah sure 
<laughs> well, uh, Nate, one of the best, I'll, I'll get to your answering your question in just a second. One of the best courses I took in college was not in my specialty. It was in genetics. And what mm -hmm. was so exciting about that course was it was devoted about half to what we do know about genetics and half that we don't know. Hmm. And back in the late 60s, there's a whole lot we did not know about yeah. genetics. And for me, it's the same with birdsong. There is so much we do know, but there's far more that we don't know. And one of the keys in my book is to lay out, I think there are 77 explore sections. Mm -hmm. All right, here's an opportunity. Step out in your backyard and take a white-breasted nuthatch, for example. They're singing this time of year. We have snow on the ground overnight. They're singing up a storm in March. Just listen to what these white-breasted nuthatches are doing. Does each male have two different songs? You can very easily mm -hmm. record with your smartphone, and Nate, you use Audacity. There are questions that you can ask and have a fantastic time on a journey of self-discovery all by yourself while social distancing yourself from whatever ails the world. Donald Kruzma is an author and ornithologist. His newest book is Birdsong for the Curious Naturalist. It's available now wherever you get your bird books. Uh, thank you so much, Don. Enjoy your spring and uh, stay healthy. Oh, spring is coming. Thank you, Nate. Good talking to you. Absolutely. I have had so many wonderful sightings of cedar waxwings, but two are particularly notable for me. The first was over 40 years ago. I was not a birder. My now husband and I were falling in love and had driven on a spring day to Lake Pepin in Minnesota. There, above our picnic spot, was a telephone line covered with a charming, busy row of cedar waxwings, clearly enjoying each other's presence. And then we were stunned to observe them passing berries to each other. Knowing little about bird behavior, we were thrilled to observe this apparent display of affection which I now understand could also be seduction, which so complemented our mood that day. The second was a few years ago on a busy street in my neighborhood. I came upon a mass of cedar waxwings, drunk on fermented berries, falling out of the sky and onto the road. Some birds were still alive, but many had been killed by passing cars. I pulled over, as did a young man in a pickup truck. He pulled out a box and we both dodged cars, picking up as many birds as we could that were still alive. I took the box home to my backyard. When I returned from an errand a few hours later, they had apparently sobered up and moved on. Thank you so much, Jane Ramberg. If you have a cedar waxwing story you'd like to share, please record it on your voice recorder app on your smartphone and send it to podcast.aba.org. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We are a membership organization, and the best way to support this podcast and the ABA is to become a member. And I'm, I'm going to be real with you right now. We need you. As you know, this COVID-19 crisis has been really tough for a lot of businesses and organizations like this one who depend on ad revenue from those businesses that we are taking that second order hit as well. We've had to cancel events. We've lost ad revenue from our partners in the travel industry who are getting absolutely slammed right now. Those are sort of two legs of our three-legged stool. But we still have the third leg, and that is membership. And you can help us out with that. It makes our stool more of a, a column for the time being, but that will do. 
If you've been waiting for an opportunity to join, now is a great time. We're gonna be doing more online stuff. We might be upping production of this podcast, which is something we've always been talking about anyway. So help us out. We will be forever in your debt. You can get more information at aba.org slash join or aba.org slash e-member. Thank you. Special shout out to Carrie Frederick Frost of Bellingham, Washington, Stephanie Strager of Ontario, California, Cody Bassendale of Dunville, Ontario, Zachary Holmes of Palmetto, Florida, James Fiermeyer of South Bend, Indiana, John Sharda of West Columbia, South Carolina, Jeffrey Bucking of Fenton, Michigan, Karen Snepp of Kirkland, Washington, and Daniel McDermott of Lowell, Massachusetts, all of whom joined the ABA recently and noted that the podcast was a reason. Thank you all for that. We appreciate it so much. And there's one more thing that you can do that is super, super easy. We know that you're at home ordering things from Amazon a lot these days. You can help us out by adding us on Amazon Smile. That way a small portion of your purchase will go to the ABA and you barely have to lift a finger. Well, you know, just the one where you click the mouse. And because I am self-isolating with my family to help me out with the credit jokes, my daughter, Julia, are you ready? Yes. Executive producer and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. What do you call a bird that only goes to red? That only goes to red. Uh, Scarlet Tanager. Cardinal. Oh, I was close on that one, wasn't I? Yeah. Technical production is by John Lowry. What do you call a bird that does yoga? A great blue heron. A yoga bird. That was not what I was thinking. (laughs) Additional help comes from Greg Meese and David Hartley. What do you call a board that only goes to trees? Only goes to trees. A tree runner. A tree board. That is not, that's not what I was thinking. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. What do you call a board that only goes to clouds? I know this one. I got this one because you guys see it like way up in the sky. It's a black swift. A cloud bot. Cloud, it's not. All right. Questions and comments can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time. I'd hear that. You want to hear it? Yeah.